morning, family church. Would you, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15? We've been working through the book of John. Last week, we saw what it meant to abide in Christ, the vine, the branches, the fruit. This morning, I'm working through just six verses, and in these six short verses, we're going to see three paradigm shifts that take place. A paradigm shift is a fundamental change in an approach or an underlying assumption that we have. And in these short verses, Jesus gives us three paradigm shifts that we see. I want you to fill in the rest of the, the blank here. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How many of you were taught this growing up? Okay. I remember in elementary school, there was this sign and it said the golden rule, and this was in a public school. I don't know if these signs are up anymore in public schools. Um, but it was back in my day, which I know you're thinking was not that long ago. <laughs> Praise the Lord for that, though, that he has uh, been doing this work even at such a young age. And I remember seeing the sign in elementary school about the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And as children, we were taught this. We teach our children this. I want to I want to look through some of the Old Testament here about this golden rule. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We move to the New Testament and we see the golden rule continued, Luke 6, 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, so also do to them, Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is a summary of the Old Testament. So many claim today that all religions of the world, all major religions, all have a form of the golden rule put in it. And so they look at the Bible and they say, well, the Bible's not a special book because it has the same thing every other religion has, this form of the golden rule. So they kind of undermine the Bible and compare it to everything else and liken it to everything else because they all have similar commands. But I want us to notice there is a major difference we're going to look at first. I want to just go through three common world religions. Confucianism says this, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Hinduism, this is the sum of your duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Buddhism says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Do you see the difference and hear the difference compared to the Bible? Let's go back to Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The difference from all the other world religions versus what God has said is the other ones are passive commands. You can follow the world religions by being passive. Do not do to others what you don't want done to you. You could sit on your hands and follow those commands. Do not. But Jesus and the Old Testament go on and say, do unto others as you want done to yourself. Love others as you love yourself. So you have 
all the world religions and all of their commands that talk about do not, do not, do not do this, do not do this. As you don't want done to you, you don't do it. And then the Bible comes along and trumps all of them and puts far and above this command, no, you are to do. You're to love them as you love yourself. Head and shoulders above everything else. But in our text this morning, and we saw it a couple of weeks ago, there's a greater command than this. Something we are given far and above this. Do unto others. While both the teachings from the Old Testament and the New Testament command action, we're to go over and above that in love. So God's teaching in the Bible far exceeds everything else. This is because God's ways are not our ways. Man's religion that they made is, of course, lower than God's religion. I want to begin by showing us the obvious about the golden rule. We say it, we think about it, but maybe we don't realize it. The golden rule is a rule. It's a command. I know that's startling or maybe not surprising to you, but it's a rule. And when we look at the Bible, it says that the rules and the commands were given for what purpose? To bring about the reality and the acknowledgement of sin. Scripture in the New Testament says that the law was given so our trespass may increase. And where our trespass increased, grace abounds all the more. Galatians 3 says that the law was our schoolmaster, our guardian that pointed us to Jesus Christ. So the law... The commands don't bring life. They don't bring life to us. All they bring is death and condemnation. Yet we teach it to our children. And we learned it as children. Pastor Montgomery Boyce gives us a great visual illustration for this. He says this. The rule, as we have in the phrase, the golden rule, is a ruler. A 12-inch measuring stick. But in England... A ruler is called a straight edge. If the expression is transferred over to the phrase the golden rule, so it could also be called the golden straight edge. We could accurately say that Matthew 7.12 is God's straight edge by which a man may really know how crooked he is. Does seeing how crooked you are help you to become straight? No, you just see your depravity. You see your brokenness. That's all that the law can do is point out your brokenness. So when we teach the law, the golden rule to our children, we just need to know it's not going to help them become a better person. The only thing it can do is help them realize what, church? They're not a good person. That's the only thing the, the moral law, the golden rule, can teach our children. It doesn't help them become better. It realizes that they're not good. And when we, when our children realize we're not good, we should look to something else. And in fact, we know that we should look to someone else, Jesus Christ. So the golden rule was always for that intention. So be careful not to elevate it to a standard of which only Jesus Christ can achieve. It's not the keeping of the rules that bring about righteousness. It's Jesus kept the rules for us that brings about righteousness in our life. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why was the law given? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. 
When you're doing evangelism or you're talking with someone and they're prideful and they say there is no God or God doesn't exist or I don't believe the Bible or whatever it is, you go to the law. If you think you're talking to a good person who doesn't understand their sin, you go to the law. If you are dealing with an agnostic or an atheist person or someone from another world religion or someone who is Jewish, you go to the law. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever had impure thoughts? Have you dishonored your parents? And you work through the law and you have them answer yes and no. So what does that make you in the sight of God? Are you innocent or are you guilty? Well, I'm innocent because God's going to weigh my good. No, God says if you transgress the law in one area, you've broken the whole thing. So if you stand before God and you have to be perfect and you've sinned even just once, are you innocent or guilty before God? That's a question for us this morning. Are you innocent or are you guilty before God this morning? And there's only a couple answers to this. It's, yes, I'm guilty and I'm going to pay that punishment myself. Or, yes, I'm guilty, but by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he's taken my sins as far as from the east is to the west. Those are the two answers, but it begins at the law. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but it is only through the law that we become conscious of our sin, Romans 3.20. So we teach laws and commands and rules to our children, but church, remember, parents, remember, as we are doing that to our children, it is only for the purpose of pointing them to Jesus because they're breaking them. They're not going to meet up to that standard. And you can say, dad doesn't meet up either. Mom doesn't meet up these laws either. And that's why Christ came. That's why it's so important that Christ came. We see Jesus say in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another. We see this was first found in John 13, 34, where Jesus comes along. And this is going to lead us to our first paradigm shift. But Jesus comes along and says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So I want us to see here that you have all the world religions, and they say do not do to others what you do not want done to you. And then you have the Old Testament law, and part of it is in the New Testament, where Jesus says, no, you love others like you love yourself. And that's head and shoulders above the rest. But then Jesus comes and says this, a new teaching I give to you is that you love others as I, Jesus, have loved you. Which trumps the one that had already trumped everything else. Because now we're called to love our spouse in a way that is foreign to us apart from the love of Christ. It's when you begin to love and understand how Christ has loved you that your marriage really begins to change. When you see how Jesus has loved you as a child, you will begin to love your children differently. This paradigm shift, number one, we see in the passages that it goes from loving through the lens of the law to loving others through the lens of grace. You have glasses or you go to a 3D movie or you have your phone and you take a picture and there's filters you can put on pictures. You can make them black and white. You can make them vibrant with different colors. You can put all different types of filters to change how you view that picture. You can wear glasses and it changes how you view 
the world. And the same is true for us as believers. You're either wearing a lens of a command or laws, or you're wearing glasses of grace. For instance, if you're wearing a lens of the law, you're going to be quick to point out other people's sins. And you're going to see that. And it's going to frustrate you. Or how, does, how do you respond when your spouse does something wrong or doesn't do what you want? Well, if you have the lens of the law on, you're going to be critical or harsh to that. But when you have the lens of filtering this action, this attitude horizontally, your lens is a lens of what Christ has done for you vertically. It transitions and changes everything to where when you look, it's Christ has given me so much mercy and how much he's loved me so I can extend that love to other people. That's what it looks like to have this lens. It's not a have to. I don't have to love this person. I get to love this person as Christ has loved me. Jesus' new teaching is something we've experienced in our own life. So how has Christ loved us? Well, 2 Corinthians says that He made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Peter tells us, Christ also died for the sins once for all, for the just and the unjust, so that He might bring us to God. In 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he, Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us. So we ought to lay down our life for our brethren. The love you have experienced from Christ should transition to the love you experience and demonstrate for your neighbors. Who are the neighbors? The people right beside you. Literally, they're your neighbors, they're your spouse, they're your children. They're the people God has in your life. And if Christ has so loved us, and we experience this love, it should and must lead to loving others. A Christian that does not understand love, I'm not sure is even a Christian. If they're proclaiming Christ, but they're not loving each other, Scripture says, how can we say that that is a believer? 1 John 3, 17, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how can we say the love of God abides in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but deed and truth. When we've experienced the love of God, it will not just be that we say we love, but we actually follow the confession of our mouth with deeds of actions, with actual works behind what we're professing to be true. J.C. Ryle says, where there is little love found, you can be sure there has been little grace experienced. So how do you love? How do we love others? in our life. When we see someone who lacks love and gentleness and is quick to condemn, we can understand they either do not understand the love, grace, and forgiveness that they have been given in Christ, or they just don't understand how 
wickedly sinful they are. It's one of the two. Because if you understand how wickedly sinful you are and that Christ still died for you, an enemy of God, someone who was hostile to God, he still gave his life for you, shed his blood for you, gave you mercy, still runs after you when you turn and run the other way. This is the type of father you have. How could you be quick to condemn others? How could you not be quick to forgive if you've experienced that type of forgiveness? If the Spirit of God is convicting your heart of something you need to do, someone you need to talk to, a reconciliation relationship that needs to happen, don't wait. Scripture says you should leave soon after and go fix that situation. Where there is no Christ-like love, there is no grace, no work of the Spirit, and no reality in our religion. Another quote by J.C. Ryle. In verse 13, Jesus foretells us and gives us an illustration of true love. What true love looks like, foretelling of his death for us. Greater love than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. As we move to verse 14, we're going to see our second paradigm shift this morning. It says, verse 14, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Paradigm shift number two, we've gone from a servant to a friend. These are packed in just a couple of verses, but we've gone from a servant to a friend. In the Old Testament, the followers of God were servants. They were told, do this, don't do that, go here. And they weren't told of God's plan. They picked up little pieces. Jesus says, no longer, comparing, contrasting what we used to be, no longer are you a servant, but a friend. We're a friend, and we know what God is at work doing. We know what Jesus is at work doing. Even Moses and Abraham did not get this privilege. They were given bits and pieces along the way. But Jesus says, a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but we do. Jesus did not hold anything back from his disciples. Isn't it a beautiful truth that Jesus does not hold things back from us? It's not on a need-to-know basis. He's given us everything, everything that pertains to life and godliness. The scriptures say he's given us, and it's right here. For those who are in Christ, it says we've been given all things. The throne room of God is open to us. We have the beginning of the story, we have the middle of the story, we have the end of the story. We have hope because it is God in the center of it. God is the one working. He's not hidden things from us. So we are called a friend of God. Now, I want to go into a danger here of overstepping our boundaries as a friend with the Lord. I've done it. I'm sure some of you have done it. It's often taught in our church and in our cultures. It's something that even this morning in worship, as I had been working through my sermon, that God reminded me of, that just brought a sense of awe and fear into the presence of worship that I don't always have. And that was remembering that God, we cannot lower to be our friend just because he's made us his friend. And I want to dig into that a little bit. 
John MacArthur shares with us a list of titles that were called in the New Testament as believers. Listen to some of these titles. Believers, beloved of God, beloved brethren, the called ones, children of God, children of the light, sons of the resurrection, Christians, disciples, the elect, the godly, heirs of God, heirs of salvation, the righteousness, lights in the world, living stones, members of the body of Christ, people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We're called the salt of the earth. We're called slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, vessels of honor, vessels of mercy, and saints. But the word friend captures a unique aspect of communion we have with the Lord. Jesus calls us friend. The caution here is just because Jesus has called us friend doesn't mean we can lower him from God Almighty, sovereign God, powerful, omnipotent to our buddy and pal. And that happens all the time. This kind of concept of Jesus is my buddy, friend, pal that I bring along and he's just kind of waiting for me to call upon him. And we lose a sense of awe and reverence when we lower him to that position. And I know at first thought, as I was thinking through this, it was kind of pushing against some of my old church understanding, what I learned in church about. It's taught that Jesus is this soft, gentle, nice guy, the friend that's always there for you. And it's it's demeaning of God. It's demeaning of God. D.A. Carson says, A mutual reciprocal friendship of the modern variety is not in view in this passage and cannot be without demeaning God. He goes on to say, Neither God nor Jesus is ever referred to Scripture as the friend of anyone in Scripture. I read that and I'm like, we talk about God as our friend and Jesus as our friend, and he is. But when we take it to the next step of lowering him to this relationship, as in we're equals, and we don't approach him with reverence, and we don't approach him with fear, a holy fear, that Scripture says is required and good to have as we approach God, then we demeaned and belittled God. And I know I've done it in my life. Something for you to think about as I was thinking through this reminded me just as the Old Testament I've been reading through Exodus 19 look see this picture of God when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord the Lord said to Moses go to the people and consecrate them today and consecrate them tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day They were preparing for two whole days to go before the Lord. Showing the sanctity, the the perfection, the holiness of God. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people around them saying, Take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And do not even touch the one who touched the mountain. He shall be stoned or shot. 
Do you see the level of holiness that God is trying to show how majestic and mighty He is? He says, you have to clean yourself for two days, and then you can approach, and you can only approach so far. And if you touch the mountain, you can't even touch the person who touched the mountain. They must be killed by being stoned or shot with arrows. Whether beast or man, they shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain of the people, consecrated the people. They washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. This little tagline there. Do you you think the men played around with that command? Do not go near a woman. Period. Three days. On On the morning of the third day... There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. This is God, the same God who's in the New Testament, the same one who is Jesus Christ. I share this with us that, yes, the torn of, or the veil of the temple has been torn in two. We do have access to the throne room of God, but there is a level of these two truths that come together that he has called us friend. We have access to, to God the Father through Jesus Christ, but we cannot belittle that. It's like having a relationship with your boss at work. And you're friends with them, but they're the CEO. And you're an intern. You can be friends, but there's certain things you can and cannot do just because you're their friend. You still have to get your job done. There's still supposed to be a reverence and respect for this authority in our life. And this thought concept, this thought, is really thrown out today. And when we throw it out of our theology, we are often able to walk in sin without fear of the Lord. We're able to do things without fear of the consequences that it brings about. So I just wanted to share that with us as I was thinking through these passages that what Christ has done, but there is a level of reverence that we're still called to have within the church and within our own life. And it is good and it is right to have. As we move to verse 16, our last paradigm shift is that we have been moving from apprehended by sin to appointed to bear fruit. Verse 16 says, You did not choose me, but Jesus speaking says, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. So we've gone from being apprehended by sin. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, there was a point in your life where you were apprehended by sin. You were controlled by sin. You were in, your, your flesh was in control, not the Spirit of God, your flesh. It did what the flesh wanted to do. 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. This is how we do evangelism. This is a picture of when you're talking to that person and they're arguing with you. It says, this is how you're supposed to handle them. It says that you're being gentle and kind, patiently correcting them. 
with gentleness, that God may perhaps, what? Grant them repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth. We don't have to win the argument. God does that for us. And he says we don't have to do it with strong words or strong language or for, uh, bending their arm to get them, or we even have to win the argument or the debate. It says do it with gentleness, that it's God who grants them repentance, which leads them to a knowledge of the truth. And then verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, Satan, to do his will. Captured. They've been captured. You were captured at one time. You were apprehended by sin. But Christ has called us, verse 13 of John 15, you've been made clean, you've been washed, so you've been appointed to bear fruit. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. So once you were apprehended by sin and could not follow God on your own, but Jesus, through the blood of the cross, chosen by God, appointed you to bear fruit. Verse 26 Verse 25, granted us repentance that led us to himself. This word appointed means set apart or ordained for a special service. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been set apart from the rest of humanity. Isn't that incredible? The word appointed and set apart or chosen in Scripture, when you look at it, this is the same wording that when you go back to the Old Testament and you see David and Goliath, and it says he went down to the river and he selected how many stones? Anybody remember? Five stones. He went, and how many stones are there? There's thousands of stones, but it says he went and selected and chose for himself five stones for a very specific purpose. This is the same terminology in the New Testament where it says God appointed, chose. And it's not just chose, it says chose out of many for a special purpose purpose. That's incredible. Makes me think, why would God have chosen me? Or why would he have chosen you? It's appointed. He tells us why. He's appointed you as a believer in Christ for one purpose, and that's to bring him glory. And one of the ways we do that is by producing fruit. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you. I set you apart out of the billions of people here on earth. I appointed you and set you apart so that you should go and produce fruit. He goes on to say, the fruit you produce will remain. How does fruit remain? Because it has been made alive in Christ. And what he makes alive doesn't die. Which means we don't believe people lose their salvation. Because what has been made alive by the Spirit of God cannot be made unalive by the work of the flesh. This is what we sang this morning, where He keeps us. He will hold me fast. It's not me holding myself. It's Christ will hold me fast. So when we mess up big and we sin and we come back to the Lord, we realize He chose us in light of that. He chose us to bring Him glory in the midst of that, to repent of that. But He is the one who's holding us. That's why we have hope. 
that our hope is not in what I do, my command of loving others, how I love myself. It's my hope is in He has loved me. I hope we're seeing that. And as He has loved me, so I now can love others. What an incredible truth this morning. The fruit remains because it has been fruit produced by the Spirit of God. It's either fruit or it's not fruit. Fruit that falls away was never fruit to begin with, according to John chapter 15. According to John, why does fruit remain? Because it's been appointed. We saw this in verse 3 last week. We have been appointed, we abide, because we have been made clean. This is what was taught in the Old Testament as well. Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. J.C. Ryle again in his expository teaching through John says this, election always leads to sanctification. Those whom Christ chooses out of mankind, he chooses not only that they may be saved, but that they may bear fruit, and that fruit will produce fruit and remain. All other election besides this is a mere vain delusion and a miserable invention of man. It was the faith and hope and love of Thessalonians which made Paul say, I know your election is of God. Where there is no visible fruit of sanctification, we can be sure there is no election. So if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are called to produce fruit. He goes on to say, armed with such principles as these, we have no cause to be afraid of the doctrine of election. Like any other truth of the gospel, it is liable to be abused and perverted. So in our verses this morning, we've seen a paradigm shift of we're now called to love others through the lens of grace. It's not through even how I love myself. It's how Christ loved me. Husbands, wives, what do you argue about? What do you, this is not to answer out loud, okay? This is just a hypothetical. But what, what, do you, what do you argue about? You know. But what is that thing that just continues to come up? You get frustrated at. Just think through those things. A lot of times I know what my wife and I, for the first many years of our marriage, and we're beginning to see some of these things, it's expectations and selfishness that we're expecting them to live up to our standard. And when that's not reached, well, that's loving others how we want ourselves loved. That's not what Jesus did. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wife how? As Christ loved the church. It's your command, husbands, to make your home a loving place. Do you know that? If love is not in the home, it's your fault. That's what the Bible teaches I know I have problems with it, right? And so do, so do you. I mean, but if our home is not how we want it to be, ultimately, it goes back to the husband's fault that we are called to make our home a place of love. And, and how did we experience that love? Is it because they deserve it? Well, how did we experience the love? It's because we deserve Christ's love? No, the love we're given was through grace, not of ourselves. It was not of works, Ephesians chapter 2. It was 
love that came in spite of what we deserved. So you have your spouse, and you're called to love them in what way? Because they deserve it? You're going to give love, or you're going to have a home of love when they act how you want them to act? No, Jesus says you love as Christ loved. Christ loved us by giving everything when we deserved nothing. So we husbands are called to love our wife when she deserves what? Exactly. Nothing. When she deserves nothing. What incredible truths. This is what it means to look at our relationships, to look at our marriage, to look at our children's, to look at our workplace through the law of, or through the, the love of grace, through the lens of grace rather than the law. Paradigm shift number two. We have gone from being a servant to a friend. What an incredible truth. And lastly, we have been, we were apprehended by sin, but we have now been appointed to bear fruit. Jesus shares one last verse with us this morning and says, These things, what you've heard this morning, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We're to know these truths as we sing. We're to be renewed in our mind. We're given these truths about being apprehended by sin to appointed. We're no longer a servant, but a friend. And we look at what Christ has done for us. We do all of this so that we in turn can love others more, produce more fruit. Incredible truths for us this morning. Would you stand as we close in prayer and for our service before I, I pray, I just want to share, if you have questions about the sermon or you want to know what it means to be a follower of God, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, grab me or one of the other pastors or one of the deacons. We'd love to walk you through. I'd love to set up a time anytime this week. I'll be in the office. Would love to talk with you about the Word of God. Maybe you have questions. Maybe there's something you'd like to sit down and talk about. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's another relationship. Would love to spend time with you. As we leave, uh, after the prayer, we have connect bo- or, uh, offering boxes here. We don't pass the offering plate at Family Church. And so if you would like to give to the ministries of the Family Church, you can do so in those boxes. That's where also you'll place your connect cards. Would you pray with me as we close? God, what incredible truths you've given us. God, we just want to sing and worship you because you are the only one who deserves it. God, these are not burdensome commands. They should not burden us. They should not tear us down. They should not weigh heavily on our heart. Because they're not commands that we have not experienced. We have experienced your love. We've experienced your forgiveness. We've experienced your grace. So you're only asking us to do what we have already received far greater than do unto others as you want done to yourself. You've loved us. You saved us. You appointed us for a purpose. God, I pray for each person here. We talked last week about bearing fruit and what people needed to change in their life to begin growing and bearing fruit, whether it be in their own life or evangelism or discipling someone else. God, I pray that there may be action to what they said they wanted to do last week, that it may continue this week. 
God, spur us all on. Help these truths that you've taught us to move through us, to love one another. As we love, it points to you. It is by this people will know we're followers of you, how we love one another. God, I pray for our marriage, marriages. I pray for the husbands, for myself, that we may make our home a place of love, not because we feel it, but because we know we're commanded to do so. And you're not commanding us to do anything we haven't already experienced. God, we thank you for loving us. We pray as we go out this week that we may continue in worship and that we may abide and produce fruit for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.